Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. As we see protests continue throughout the country, many hope that this could be a moment for police reforms. But experts say that it will be a difficult path, and the politics of police reform have squashed these efforts before because of powerful police unions and legal immunity for police. But public perception of police bias has started to shift, and many recognize a deeper problem. For more on this, we'll speak to Kimberly Kendi, national investigative reporter at The Washington Post. In 2014, when Eric Garner died after he was held in a chokehold in New York, saying among his last words, um, I can't breathe, very much like Mr. Floyd said recently, moments before he died. There were 50 protests around the nation. There was certainly an uprising and there was a lot of talk about reform. After Michael Brown, an 18-year-old, was shot and killed by an officer in Ferguson, Missouri, some months later, there was legislation that was introduced in the nation's capital, many pieces of legislation, and it all stalled. And what we did see was some police departments doing some reform, changing the way in which they trained officers. But it was very piecemeal because there's 18,000 police departments. So you didn't see systemic change. And one of the reasons that makes it really difficult is that police unions have contracts that are, you know, provide a lot of immunity and cover for police officers when they use force. And there is also case law that makes it really difficult to prosecute officers. If they go before a jury, let's say that you actually have an officer who gets charged with some sort of crime when they use excessive force and somebody dies. What jurors are told is that they need to consider whether or not the officer feared for their life in the moment in which they use the fatal force. And most jurors are inclined to believe an officer when they say that they feared for their life. And so the odds of getting an officer prosecuted for something like this is low. And the odds of getting uh, national legislative reform passed is very low. It definitely does seem that way. And it's an interesting feeling this time around. It feels different. Sure. You, you see it in the protests and just the diversity that really is out there. You kind of hear it all the time, but you're really seeing it so much more this time. And specifically with the George Floyd case, I mean, there's so much video sure. of the interaction happening. It's hard to dispel right. some of that. But then you bring in other stories like Breonna Taylor, and there haven't been any mm-hmm. charges in that case. I think they reopened that case to see what they can do there. But this is a tough, tough road ahead. And But let's talk a little bit about those changing perspectives, because some polls have said that they're starting to see it now, or at least starting to believe it more now that there is this type of systemic racism. Absolutely. There's a huge change in that respect. And I think that gives a lot of civil rights leaders hope. A lot of members of Congress have been trying to pass comprehensive national reforms hope. I covered Ferguson. I covered the protests when 18-year-old Michael Brown was shot and killed there. And during that era, You'd maybe have 100 protests across the nation. We're approaching 500 protests across the nation now. And just the very complexion, you know, the very way in which the crowds look completely different. Certainly there were people of all races and cultures that were supportive of the movement 
five years ago. But what we're seeing right now is much, much greater diversity in terms of people who are out there and are motivated to demand reforms and to demand change. And with the civil rights leaders I've talked to and with the members of Congress who are pushing for federal reforms, they say that they believe this is a watershed moment because we have moved from it being an issue where it was something that the black community was pushing for with some support to it being an American issue where you're seeing people from all sectors of life who are saying this must change. Democrats in the House just unveiled their Justice in Policing Act of 2020. They want to broaden police accountability. They want to track problematic officers through some type of national misconduct registry. These are a lot of things that people have been talking about for a long time, but it's so hard to get done on the broad scale of things. And another thing that came up in your reporting too, there's been so much done in the area of training, bias training, or even de-escalation training. Mm -hmm. But then when cops get into the field and they start working with more seasoned officers, some of that goes by the wayside. So there is a ton of work to be done. It's a huge problem. There's two things that when you actually have a police department that decides that they're going to do some serious reform of their police training. And there's dozens of police departments around the nation that have taken this seriously and and really in the last several years changed how they train their officers. But you do run up against just two very basic things. There's many things, but two very basic things. One, as you mentioned, when a cadet leaves the academy training, they're assigned a field training officer. And it makes a lot of sense. You have a veteran officer who's been out there. They know the community. They know what police work really looks like. But as it was told to me by some police training experts who were former police officers and said, then they tell them, they're like, hey, kid, this is how the real world operates. So you have an undermining that reform training that happens. And that's a problem. The other problem is, and this is like probably going to be astonishing to many of your listeners, but the average tenure for a police chief is two to three years in this country. It is such a difficult job. They don't last very long. So if you have a police chief that is able to find a way to work with their union and their officers to achieve reform and change training, by the time they actually get it underway and they start to see some change in their department, they're gone. And the next guy, as in all kinds of businesses that we're talking about, it's not just police departments, but when a new leader, a new CEO, and in this case, a police chief comes in, they want to set their own agenda. They don't want to do what the old guy did. So then those reforms can get undermined and fall by the wayside. So these are some of the problems, like a big problem is just like it doesn't happen across the board. But even in the places where they do it, these things tend to undermine the reforms that happen. Kimberly Kendi, national investigative reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. In the fight against coronavirus, this summer will be very important. There are three coronavirus vaccine candidates that will be entering phase three of clinical trials in the race for an effective treatment. Each of these trials will involve tens of thousands of people, and researchers hope to get some results within six to eight months. For more on this race to a vaccine, we'll speak to Peter Loftus, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. For the last several months, really since January and February, there have been a number of vaccine projects that have gotten off the ground. And in fact, I think there's more than 100 globally that are in development at some stage. But what we've seen, I think, in recent weeks is sort of the emergence of some front runners and some vaccines that, for a number of reasons, seem to be the closest to potentially being 
an answer to bringing the pandemic under control. And so some of the vaccines have already started studies in humans, clinical trials where researchers are testing whether people have the desired immune response to the virus and also testing whether it's safe. So the studies so far have been just a few and relatively small numbers, like in the hundreds or maybe in some cases a couple thousand patients. But those studies that have already started, they can only tell so much about a vaccine and whether it's going to be the answer. And so what you need are these really big clinical trials with tens of thousands of patients that will actually test not just whether a vaccine triggers an immune response in a person, but also whether then they are protected from the virus. And the way you do that is by running these big trials in which some patients will get the vaccine, some people will get a placebo, and then you kind of compare both groups. Did one group get infected at a certain rate and the other group got infected at a different rate? And so that will yield the more definitive answers about which vaccines work. They'll get the vaccine, obviously, to see if they can start getting that immune response, the antibodies and everything, but are they exposed to the virus after? Do they just live normal life and see if they get it or don't? How does that part of it work? I think they envision people getting vaccinated and then living their lives. And the idea would be that even though I think the peak of the virus seems behind us, or at least the dramatic growth seems to have flattened out, it's still spreading in the country. And so the expectation is that once these trials get underway in a few weeks, that they'll pick locations in the country where the average person who participates in these trials might have a chance of being exposed. And so they'll be able to see X number of people in the vaccine group ended up getting infected versus Y number of people in the placebo group. Phase three is the final phase of these, obviously the biggest one, as we've been talking about. But historically, a lot of vaccine candidates fail to make it through all the phases of these trials. Obviously, there's a ton of different candidates working on this. Does the one that gets it right first, is that the one vaccine that everybody's going to kind of take on to after? Because some of these others might prove to be very effective also. And some of the experts are saying, you know, we're going to need obviously more than one vaccine. So obviously the first one will be the big winner, but there's still going to be a lot of other ones that people will possibly be getting. I think most of the people I've talked to who are either with the drug companies or public health officials or academic researchers, there seems to be a consensus that we're going to need several vaccines. And I think for a couple of different reasons, I think one is just like the sheer number of people globally who will need to be vaccinated. It would be very hard for one company making one vaccine to make enough of that vaccine to vaccinate everybody. And so it would be helpful to have multiple options there. And then I think also there's a chance that these vaccines will perform differently in each of the trials. And so you could have one that maybe it's like 90% effective, and then you have another that's only 50 or 60%. And then you could have differences in terms of maybe one seems to help a certain subgroup of people more than another vaccine. So I think the first vaccine to get a definitive answer in one of these big trials about it being safe and effective, that would be a big moment. But I think there is an expectation that it's going to take more than that and that these continuing trials will also have to be watched to see what more we can add to the vaccine supply. Peter Loftus, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Finally for this week, the results are in on remote learning. It didn't work. 
The problems quickly stacked up in school districts ill-equipped to make such drastic changes. Some students lacked access to computers or internet, some teachers had no experience with remote learning, and some parents were unavailable to help. For more on how this remote learning experiment went and what's on deck for next year, we'll speak to Lee Hawkins, education reporter at the Wall Street Journal. The things that didn't work were a direct result of the way it started. It was very sudden. It was abrupt. It was unexpected. All of a sudden, we had this coronavirus that came from overseas. And next thing you know, as the numbers started to skyrocket, the leadership at many of the schools in the major cities and even in rural areas across this country were kind of reluctant to close schools because they didn't know how to implement it in the future, how to implement remote learning over that time off. And so the fact that it was so abrupt and that there wasn't a lot of notice meant that there wasn't a lot of training. And the fact that there wasn't a lot of training and the fact that children didn't have the devices that they needed, all of the children, because of economic disparities, that only compounded the problem. We'll get into a lot of different specifics. The first thing I want to bring up, though, I think there's a name for it, even uh, the COVID slide. And this is kind of the learning gap for the kids during this last few months. This whole time, you know, maybe they're not learning at the same level anymore. I think there was a few statistics about it, too, that kids are going to return to school in the fall with roughly 70 percent of the learning gains in reading relative to a typical school year. And for math, it's only 50 percent. So that's kind of most concerning to me, too, is kids advancing to the next grade, harder things that they're supposed to be learning, and they might not be prepared for it. There were many students that struggled, particularly special needs students and students with ADHD, students with autism, but even more than that, students who are more visual learners who need to connect with their teachers in order to be able to comprehend the information. I'm not surprised at the difference between the performance of students in reading versus math, because once again, math is a very hands-on endeavor, something that you need to actually maybe have follow-up questions on. So that was one of the things that contributed to this COVID slide. And it's going to require that schools, particularly like the New York public school system, do some remedial training this summer. The New York public school system is going to be putting over 150,000 kids in summer school. And a lot of those students were put there because they need to catch up. And so the concern now is that if schools reopen in the fall, that there will need to be even more review work to bring those kids up to speed. And if they don't do the review work, the question is, will there be some learning loss that is long-term that we start to see in standardized tests and tests to get to the next grade? I wanted to also talk about grading because This is one of the things that you keep reading into a little more and you're kind of like, oh my gosh, you're not going to be able to hold these kids accountable, I guess, for learning. And it's tough. I know that there's huge problems with access, but we're talking about them not learning the right materials. And if they advance to the next grade, they're not going to be prepared. What a lot of school districts were even doing was say, don't issue grades that would be harmful. Don't issue F grades. I think some school districts even banned the F grades. There was a lot of things, they're called hold harmless. So don't give grades that would negatively affect students, but ones that are neutral or help advance them, those are permitted. Tell us a little bit about grading. There was a wide range of grading processes that happened across schools. I talked to people at private schools who gave an option of pass-fail, credit, no credit, things like that, because, listen, if you're spending $50,000 a year to go to an elite school in New York or something like that, 
poor grades are things that can haunt you when it's time to apply for college. And I think teachers and administrators understood that students should not be penalized if they did not perform well in the remote learning environment. And it's not always because they don't get the remote learning. There can be family dynamics that are going on in the home. We see domestic violence shoots up in periods like this. These are all things that Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, was very concerned about. And so the whole idea is if you penalize kids for adverse childhood experiences that interfere with their ability to do well on remote learning, it's not fair to see their grades suffer because everybody needs to be on an equal plane in order to really grade everybody fairly. Taking attendance was such a big hurdle for a lot of teachers and for the students themselves. They had a few statistics already showing that some of the kids weren't even showing up as soon as they were kind of getting wind that maybe they weren't giving the fail grades out, things like that. I think in Los Angeles for the LA Unified School District, they estimated that on any given day in a week span, 32% of high school students didn't even log in to do the remote learning. A lot of our educational values come from our parents, but they also come from the financial and economic situation that we're in. There are many children who are babysitting siblings. There are many children who have to share a device with four other siblings. And there are many children who may have other responsibilities or things to worry about. And their parents may not be aggressive about telling them to log into school. If a 10-year-old has to use his or her own motivation to log into school, a lot of the times they may not do that unless they're reminded to do so. The school year is ending. Everybody's already looking ahead to, you know, as you mentioned earlier, summer school even. And then what's beyond that, going back to school in the fall, what's going to be the plan? I'm seeing a lot of things about a hybrid system, which would basically be still some remote learning and then cycling kids in and out of live school instruction as well. So it's very likely that there will be some kind of blended learning or hybrid learning system that combines remote learning with face-to-face instruction. In some cases, you're hearing that kids could be going to school on Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, and then switch to remote learning and then allow the other group of kids to go on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then they switch to remote learning. There are all kinds of different possible models and forms that this could take, but it's still being hashed out across cities, across the country. And let's also remember that in some areas, it's going to be more challenging than others. The New York public school system has 1.1 million students. In some rural areas, it may not be as daunting because they may be able to pull off the social distancing requirements just because of the fact that they don't have as many students. So all of this is still being decided, and we're going to see if school starts as we know it in the fall. There's a high, high possibility that remote learning will be a permanent part of some aspect of our future. Lee Hawkins, education reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Everybody stay safe. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.